Hello, dear listener. We are looking to add a new member to our engineering team again. Ideally, we're looking for a senior level mechanical design engineer in the Phoenix area who has experience designing custom automated machines, equipment, and test fixtures. Also, having working experience with controls and system integration would be a big plus. If you'd like to apply or suggest someone, please email us at info at teampipeline.us. The Being an Engineer podcast is a repository for industry knowledge and a tool through which engineers learn about and connect with relevant companies, technologies, people, resources, and opportunities. Enjoy the show. For me, engineering is a way of life. Uh, I I think uh, taking a step back, people think of engineering as a profession to make money or maybe make more money than they could in in some other field. But I think engineering, if we do it right, we learn how to do things logically. We learn how to analyze and provide feedback from what we learn to improve. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Being an Engineer podcast. Today we're speaking with Guna Selvadure, who is a professor and also director of uh, biomedical engineering at San Jose State University. He holds a bachelor's in mechanical engineering from Tokyo Institute of Technology and a master's in material science and PhD in extractive metallurgy from Stanford. Also, Guna is fluent in English, Japanese, German, Tamil, and Malay. So, uh, Guna, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. The first question I have for you, Guna, is Ima demo Nihongo Yokutskaimaska. Amaritskaimase. Ah, so deska. Nase ego a Nihongo dekimaska. Watashiwa Ninen ka Nihon ni sumimashita. Ninen Niju nemai. Yeah, Watashiwa Sunda na Yonju nemai des. All right, that was just a fun little Japanese conversation. I always look for opportunities to use my Japanese when I have the chance, but it's not very often. Same here, same here. That was fun. All right, well, uh, speaking of languages, how did you learn, I think, these five different languages that you were fluent in? Well, I was born and grew up in a multicultural country called Malaysia. My parents are migrants from northern Sri Lanka, so the language we spoke at home was Tamil. And then I learned Malay because we lived in Malaysia, uh, but that was also during towards the end of the colonial times. So my education was actually all in English. Then I went to Japan, and so I had to learn Japanese because I, I was there for my undergraduate education. Then several years later, after my PhD, I was in Germany for three years working at a European community uh, nuclear chemistry lab. So I learned, I, I buckled down and really learned German well. But my German is really rusty because I hardly ever use it in the US. But Japan, I've had connections and continue maintaining ties with friends, professional and personal. So somewhat 
I'm able to keep up with it. How fun. Now, did you find that because when you grew up, you were already speaking three different languages, were German and Japanese, uh, maybe not easy, but was it easier for you to learn them because you already had this linguistic background that maybe for other people? I think the barrier towards a different language was less because of my background. I think a lot of people can learn languages far better than they actually think they can. And I think it's a self-imposed barrier. You start out by saying, no, I cannot. This is difficult. It's bound to be difficult. That's a good way to put it. Um, I noticed that, or you told me that you're not on social media. I wanted to ask about that. Is that a, a conscious choice of yours that you have intentionally stayed away from social media? Or have you just not gotten around to it yet? Well, more of the former than the latter. Phone <laughs> rings often enough, emails pile in every morning. Yeah. I hardly have enough time even to take care of what I need to take care of. So social media, well, these days I have a cell phone. I didn't have a cell phone until about a year and a half ago. Oh, really? How interesting. Because if people want to reach you, they'll find you. That's a pretty good filter, isn't it? If yes. if they don't really want to get a hold of you, they're not going to go through the trouble to yeah. find you without a cell phone. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, you worked in, in Japan as an engineer back in the early 70s. What was it? I'm sure things have changed since then, but what was it like working as an engineer in Japan? You know, how did how did their culture affect their working environment? Was it very different than working as an engineer here in the U.S.? Yes, it is. So first of all, by the time I worked as an engineer in Japan, I had already lived in Japan for five years because I went there as an 18-year-old high school graduate on a full Japanese government fellowship to do my BS degree. That included one year of language instruction, which is insufficient, of course, and then four years in college where everything was in Japanese. Wow, that must have been hard. Well, I buckled down and did the work. So I wrote my senior thesis in Japanese, and I wanted to do that. that wow. Was a milestone for me. With kanji or all hiragana? No, no, with kanji. Oh, that is serious stuff. Yes, yes. I, I really enjoyed, and I found out, you know, one of my hypotheses, and I have several of these, is the Japanese were able to industrialize so fast because they were using kanji. And can you explain very quickly for those who don't know what kanji is, what is kanji? Kanji is actually the Chinese characters that the Japanese adopted from China going way back, like 600 or 700 AD. And, and it's the, what's unique about kanji is that they have a meaning associated with each character. And you can use combinations of characters, like, you know, you have a character for say the moon, that's getsu. A full moon is mangetsu. Man means full. You put the two together. You may not know how to pronounce it properly, but you can get the meaning right away. And they're almost pictorial in a way. Yeah, they, they were, I think they had pictorial origins that have since, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, gone away the, because they've kind of standardized a lot of things. And so one of my complaints about the People's Republic of China is they have simplified it to the point that you can't tell what the pictorial origins are anymore. 
Hmm. Why do you think the use of kanji enabled the Japanese to quickly industrialize? Well, it was um, distribution of knowledge or the how people acquired knowledge and they were looking at these characters and it conveys a meaning which is different from like in the European languages where you've got to go look up a dictionary. So if you really understand the original meanings of each character, you see a, a word that has three characters, you can kind of figure out what, what it really stands for. It, it conveys ideas. And I think we've, uh, I think our Greek and Latin origins probably had those ideas as well. But especially like if you take biochemistry, we are not taught to think of it as biology and chemistry. And if you put the two together, you can make sense out of it. But if you learn the word biochemistry as an individual word by itself, independent of its roots, then it becomes much more difficult. There's almost this extra step that we have to go through reading Romanized characters, right? We take the characters, we string them together, we make sense of it in our heads, and then we understand. Whereas kanji, like you said, you look at the words and there isn't that intermediate step. You just, you see the meaning on the page. Yes, agree, completely, completely agree. Yeah. How, because you work with the uh, Japanese organizations even now, how how is their engineering environment different than that of the U.S.? I think, uh, well, in Japanese they say tateshakai, which literally means vertical society. And Japan is very hierarchical. Even now, in uh, in engineering, in the corporate world, in the government world, even more so. Whereas the U.S. is not so hierarchical. So if you're working in Japan, you can work as hard as you want and as brilliantly as you want. But your promotion comes up when you are old enough for it. Interesting. Does that demotivate people there or it's not a big deal? It, I mean, people are used to it. That's the way society is, right? That's Whereas just how it is. I think all my bosses right now are all younger than I am. <laughs> and that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, moving on, you, you are at the forefront of research in regards to material compatibilities uh, in, in biological environments. What's happening there that the engineering community should be aware of? Uh, well, we call it biocompatibility. And what I've been working on is mostly implantable medical devices, which when it goes into the uh, human body has to function in a manner that it does not compromise the safety of the human body. So there's a lot of work going on. Uh, there, there's tons of work going on. A lot of people are working on different things, uh, different types of materials that they can use. And the intent is to provide the human body with the functionality that the organ would on its own. And a good example is like a pacemaker that's been around for a long time. And the pacemaker now tells the heart at uh, what intervals to beat and how strong that beat should be. These can all be programmed in, but the body has to be able to contain the pacemaker. Without reacting to it adversely. Adversely, that's right, yes. Yeah. Yes. And what's happening in that area of science right now that's that's new, cutting edge? What should 
what should engineering teams who are interested in biocompatibility be be thinking about that you've seen in your research? Ah, I wish you told me that question yesterday. I'd have thought about it, but uh, <laughs> that's okay. No, people are coming up with new materials that can last longer. Uh, typically, I think, uh, but there, there's still a lot of research that needs to go in. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that are unique to implanted material devices is that they are subjected to periodic loading, not a constant static load. So then come, then you get issues like what we call fatigue or metal mm-hmm. fatigue. Uh, that is there. Um, yeah, it's a huge big topic. I'm kind of struggling as to where to start with. Plus, I'm sure there are lots of things that people are working on that I'm not even aware of because there's so many researchers working sure. in the area. Yeah. Well, let me ask a question in another area. So this is another really interesting area in which you have spent time um, is earthquake engineering. And I also noticed that you're the executive director for a, a collaborative, which I think you created on disaster mitigation. Is that related to your earthquake engineering expertise? Yes. What can you tell us about, about that, uh, the collaborative and, and kind of like your mission there? Okay. So my mission there is, I think, uh, and even these days, I, when I when people talk about this, sometimes I get a little agitated is, the emphasis, unfortunately, keeps being on be prepared. And be prepared is water, food, blankets, you know, maybe tents. And those are necessary. But I think what is even more important is what I call mitigation. Is what can we do ahead of time that will reduce the damage? Because we, we can leave our homes and go away and seek refuge somewhere. But what are we going to come back to? And not only that, uh, my particular area of uh, experience, I'd say, I won't say expertise, but experience, is really not so much the building per se, but the building contents. Hmm. Uh, the buildings have significantly improved, especially in the US in the last 30, 40 years, because all the structural engineers have been working on it. The codes have become much more stringent. And our homes today are far more resistant to damage by earthquakes than um, they were like 30, 40 years ago. But then it's, and, and the, the, what I'm going to say next applies to both individual homes as well as major buildings. It's the contents that determines the functionality of the building. You could have a building housing a school one day. It could be a religious organization another day. And the, the third day, it could be some office complex, all of which is determined by the contents. And if you look at the typical building, I'll just use random numbers, but to convey the message, uh, if you take uh, some of the manufacturing, especially the high-tech manufacturing uh, facilities, I'd say that the building is probably worth $5 million. The equipment is probably worth 30 to $40 million. But the business itself could be worth several hundred million dollars. And if we fo- focus on the buildings and the contents get damaged, then you actually suffer a lot of damage. And the contents, the standards for anchoring and protecting the contents from damage 
is far less developed than the standards for the building itself. So I think That's... I've been on that bandwagon of mitigation of building contents. That's a really unique standpoint that I haven't heard before. Very insightful, right? The building is probably the least valuable portion of the overall enterprise of the, yeah. the contents of what's being done there. So why focus so much effort and attention on on ruggedizing the building? Why not focus some of that attention on ruggedizing the contents and, and, and the business around it? Yeah, and, and uh, one more point while we're on that topic is um, less strong ground shaking can damage the contents right now because the standards for anchoring and protecting them from damage are not as well developed. So the building could be fine. The contents could be fried and you are fried. Yeah. Well, the, the mission of this collaborative is to uh, mitigate or reduce the damage that can be done by these natural disasters. What, what tools or strategies has the collaborative been able to identify and help businesses put in place to accomplish that end? Yeah. So uh, a disclaimer to begin with, over the last like seven, eight years, the collaborative has not been very active because I've been working on developing the biomedical engineering program at San Jose State. And unfortunately, there are only 24 hours in a day. But having said that, when the collaborative was active, you know, we did several studies. We worked with the California Seismic Safety Commission. In, like they, we helped and actually got a contract from them to revise what is called the Homeowner's Guide to Earthquake Safety. Uh, had it translated in Spanish as well. And we were in, we were interested in translating it to several other languages, so that the knowledge there and the homeowner's guide to earthquake safety we wrote it in, at the eighth grade level. So and and I think that that's one of the things we focused on is getting dissemination of the knowledge at a level where people can understand it. Um, one one of the in my mind, more important studies we did was while what we call building content hazard mitigation or earthquake mitigation can be very inexpensive and pretty straightforward. Many of them are available at the level of a DYI, and yet it doesn't seem to disseminate that far and what the problems were. What, and, what are a few of those? Yeah, so the problems or the issues the the relatively inexpensive almost diy methods for mitigating damage to contents so you live in a home i'm sure you have a bookshelf uh i won't ask you where you live but i'll assume it's in an earthquake zone uh actually we're in phoenix so not not too many earthquakes here no no but uh but so your bookshelves are not anchored to the wall that is mostly true. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, it is mostly true in the U in California as well. And anchoring a bookshelf to the wall sometimes costs less than the bookshelf itself, depending upon the type of bookshelf you have. But you've got to do it right, not anchor it to drywall, but anchor it to studs. Um, I, I do consulting in this area as well for companies. And so many times I've seen you know, if you look at the bolt-to-bolt -bolt distance and it's 
different from the stud to stud distance. You know, it's not anchored to the studs, right? Right. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of like anchoring bookshelves to the wall can be done as a DIY. So the industrial analog to that would be if you have a, a injection molding press, anchor that to the cement floor. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And and uh, for a separate grant. Uh, we actually took one engineering lab and anchored all the experimental equipment to the to the concrete floor. Okay. Okay, I see. Very good. Well, l- l- let me ask a question in a different area. You are an academic and have been for most of your career. How how does academia communicate with industry? to understand the the skills that universities need to impart to their students so that the students are prepared to enter the workforce upon graduation. Okay. <laughs> I'm I'm laughing because that's another well I well it, it's something I've thought a lot about and, and uh, you know something like I would say I don't have hard numbers but I think I'm correct about well, 95% of college students are actually in college to go work in uh, actual work environment as opposed to research. Yet a lot of the educational emphasis is on preparing students to become researchers. Hmm. Because that's what the professors are. The professors, you know, all are PhD types. They've taken the research pathway. Um, and I think the extent to which we can... Things have improved a lot in the U.S., especially with the engineering, American Society for Engineering Education and so forth. Um, there is a greater emphasis of, on bringing, uh, importing and integrating what are called the soft skills. And, you know, I, I could be, you know, a, a prima donna, but if I walk into an organization and I'm so spiteful of the others that we can't work together, it causes more disruption, right? Right, yeah. And one of my friends who is an HR director at one of the major Silicon Valley companies uh, told me something that I'll never forget, uh, that as long as you're, you know, half halfway intelligent, what we need you to know, we can teach you. But the characteristics of keeping a productive environment is something that's more deep-rooted and so they, they look for the ability of an individual to be able to work with others, uh, to give advice or opinions, to be receptive to counter opinions. Um, I, I think this is something we still have a lot of work to do. So a 4.0 GPA, in my mind, says you are, exper- you are capable of delivering what the professor wants to see on the test. <laughs> That's a really good way to put it. Yeah. It's not a popular opinion. I, I should. <laughs> I, I bet it isn't, especially within the academic circle. Yeah. yeah. But how brave of you for thinking about it and being willing to talk about it. I love that. Well, you know, I worked for five years in Japan and then uh, another three years in Germany. And also I worked here as a consultant for about a couple of years. And it makes you think, you know, why am I not being effective? You know, what can I do? You know, how, why does that person not like me? It's not that the person doesn't like you per se. 
it's how you've portrayed things most of the time. And in order to, for the engineering knowledge and expertise to be effective and effectively used, there are other items that are necessary that actually um, uh, you cannot ignore those. And that is the personality skills, right? Yeah. The soft skills, as you said. Yeah. 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 Well, a man named Dan Sullivan said that all progress starts with honesty. So I love what you're saying here. I, I, I have opinions about uh, engineering and education myself, and, and I think that they're aligned pretty well with yours, it sounds like. Well, let me take a, just a short break here and share with the listeners that teampipeline.us is where you can learn more about how we help medical device and other product engineering or manufacturing teams develop turnkey equipment custom fixtures, and automated machines to characterize, inspect, assemble, manufacture, and perform verification testing on your devices. We are speaking with Guna Selvadure today. And um, going back to the kind of the the academic discussion here, in, in your academic career, have you done or not have you, you have done more than just teaching. You've actually uh, developed entirely new programs and curriculums for the university. How do you go about developing new curriculums and and how can industry use these techniques to continue educating and training our workforce? Ah, uh, well, you've got to have a spark somewhere that says, go do this, right? And uh, I think the first uh, curriculum I developed was actually in microelectronic interconnection, or what is commonly called packing, uh, packaging. And it was just, you know, you go out, you mix with people, you attend events, technical events, you meet people, and you, then suddenly you start realizing, you know, what we are teaching in school is not addressing this. So the first area I delved into and spent quite a lot of time was, as I mentioned, uh, semiconductor interconnection or packaging. And um, that, well, now I forgot what I was trying to say. Sorry about that. Uh, but that helped me uh, get started. And it's a subject that's taught in a few schools. Maybe they have a class on it. Uh, but I got to get, gather my friends from industry and said, let's brainstorm about what is needed in this area. How do we put a curriculum together? Because the, it, it's a very industry-oriented topic. It's it's not uh, electronics per se, although it is, but there's a lot of material science. There's a lot of mechanical engineering, uh, human factors. It's an interdisciplinary area. And... Um, so we worked on that and developed not a full degree program, but a concentration that ran very successfully for, and we were in the right place at the right time. This was in the late eighties, early nineties in Silicon Valley. The need is definitely there. Uh, and we ran that for about 15 years until a lot of semiconductor manufacturing went offshore. And, and so the prob- that program slowly wound down. In the meantime, you know, unbeknownst to me, the presence of biomedical engineering companies in the Valley had had actually been growing. And I had friends there, and in various conversations, 
we I thought I was talking about metallurgy and material science, and they were talking about biomedical devices. So I started working from a materials and perspective in that area and started realizing that there was there were a lot of companies who were actually in that field, though not officially recognized. It was not a field that was officially recognized. So I'm trying to condense the story. I don't want to keep you here for three days. Uh, <laughs> but then the challenge was creating this discipline within the university where none existed. So you do that carefully, step by step. Uh, don't step on too many toes. Don't don't make people feel uh, endangered. And right, because the university is this this large mass that has been moving slowly along, right through time. Yeah, yes. And now you're trying to change. You're trying to redirect the inertia of that mass, and that's got to be a difficult thing to do. Yeah, well, it wasn't all that bad. It's just I was trying to create a new curriculum and a, and ultimately a new department but it took me about 10 years yeah yeah and there are lots of committees to go through and uh people to bow your head to and say yes sir i agree even if you don't <laughs> <laughs> what <laughs> being diplomatic being that's another soft skill right that should be yeah. taught i and think i was never known for my diplomacy before <laughs> So you went through the school of hard knocks, how to get things done. And yeah, I'm yeah. actually very proud to say that and glad more than proud is we successfully created the department. Uh, it came into official existence, I think about around 2012 is when the curriculum was approved by the CSU chancellor. Then we said about creating our own identity in the university. And now we have about 500 students. Fantastic. Congratulations. That's a big accomplishment. Yeah, well, but with people like Mike Rio, the first thing I did was to form an industry advisory council that would guide us along. And we still have the industry advisory council. All the, peop the people are in, from industry. Um, and we meet at least once a year and then also seek the advice you know, on an informal basis. Yeah. We have um, at Pipeline, the beginning of each week, we sit down with our engineering team and we say, these are the things that we need to accomplish this week. And we assign tasks so that those things get accomplished. And when we assign tasks, we ask the engineers, how many hours do you think it's going to take to do this task? As opposed to you know, the, the project manager or the project leader is saying, okay, Mr. Engineer, Mrs. Engineer, here's this task for you to do. I want you to do it in eight hours or 20 mm -hmm. hours or whatever, right? That's That That would be like the universities telling industries saying, here are the things that we're going to teach our students so that they can perform well in industry. That's not how it's done. You need to go to industry and say, okay, industry, what are the things that these students need to know to be successful once they graduate. That's what you're saying. Yeah, that, that's right. And we've started new courses based on the input from the Industry Advisory Council. For example, the biomedical engineers get a class in uh, the regulatory affairs because everything we do is regulated by the FDA. And if we are not aware of the environment that we're going to work in, then we, we don't work that successfully. 
Yeah. Well, we've we've kind of touched on this already, uh, but let me ask the question directly. What what do you think are the most important things for an engineer to learn during their formal educations? For me, engineering is a way of life. Uh, it is. I think uh, taking a step back, people think of engineering as a profession to make money or maybe make more money than they could in, in some other field. But I think engineering, if we do it right, we learn how to do things logically. We learn how to analyze and provide feedback from what we learn to improve. So I, I think engineering contains within, inherent to engineering, are also concepts like continuous improvement. and I've I've always had difficulty where people separate the professional from the personal. And I think they're all together. If you're not an ethical person, you can't be an ethical engineer, which is essential. And in order to be an ethical engineer, if you value that, you've got to look at yourself in your personal life as well. Are you saying that um, as far as some of the most important things for engineers to learn in their formal education, um, like ethics and and really understanding who you are as a person not only that but how you operate as a person as well okay so so it's not even i mean the technical stuff yeah but you're you're saying even maybe more important than the, the technical stuff is is learning how you as a person work that's right and i think the two are tied together you know if you work meticulously you check your, you dot your I's and cross your T's, you should be, you now have the ability to take that capability back home with you or into society when you're meeting with your friends and have that sense of, uh, I want to say meticulousness, I don't know what the proper word is, but being meticulous in everything else you do. Yeah, yeah. Because it's not just about being meticulous eight to five, it's about being meticulous in every aspect of your life all day, every day. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned that you think one of the most important things an engineer can learn in his or her formal uh, education is learning how they operate as a person. So that being the case, that it, it is so critical for us to understand how we operate as individuals within the context of engineering or just within the context of life, what are some ways that especially uh, younger listeners, students can, can experiment and figure out how it is they operate as individuals? Well, I don't know about that, but let me answer Maybe a slightly different question. Sure. Related. Sure. Yeah. I think introspection is necessary um, at, at all times. And it's easy to blame things on others. But to take a step back, okay, I've already goofed today in what I did. But why did I goof? What, what did I do wrong? Um, and if you have very good friends that you can open your hearts to, really maybe even discussing it with them. Uh, I, I think that's why I value friends. It's I want my friends to tell me what I did wrong, not my enemies, you know. <laughs> because, they, because they will tell me the... I trust my friends to tell me exactly 
what they think I did wrong, and that helps improve the situation or help helps me improve myself. Yeah. So speaking to people that you know well and who know you well and asking them for some feedback or yeah, people uh, who give you yeah or, yeah where you can really open your heart out and talk with people very brutally frankly and say I'm not looking for kudos and too many people I think are in the habit of trying to blame something that goes wrong on others uh, and that absolves us of our responsibility in that situation and. I still catch myself. I mean, I always catch myself saying, why the hell did I do that? What a stupid fool I was. <laughs> sometimes you need two or three knocks to wake you up, you know? Yeah, or, or more sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's easy for us to come up with an idea for some new initiative. Maybe it's an idea for we should develop a biomedical curriculum at the university, or maybe it's a much simpler idea. We should plant a garden in the in the um, back of the house, in the backyard. So it's, it's relatively easy to come up with these ideas for whatever the new initiative or, or project is. Um, uh, it, it's another thing entirely to actually execute on those ideas and bring them into fruition. Um, reading through your background and, and everything you've done in your career, you seem to have been quite successful at, at bringing ideas to fruition. In fact, the word prolific came to mind as I as I researched you in, in pre- preparation for this interview. Can you share with me your framework for translating an idea into a reality? You know, what what are the mental check boxes that that you check off, or how do you how do you frame that process? Ah, let me think just for a minute here. I'm asking you hard questions. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, frankly. <laughs> These are questions, now you point out, and I'll agree, I got these things done, but I don't have a question of did I, you know, create a framework and mentally approach it. Um, I don't think I went about things that methodically, but I think I had a passion for what I was doing. And you take one baby step at a time. And um, I, I think, I believe in small, uh, small, accomplishments or achievements that you can continue building on, um, but also being honest about what you're doing. So, like, you know, I was the first one to admit that I know nothing about biomedical engineering. So let me find people who can tell me what I should be doing and listen to them. And I think there are enough people out there, if, if they see that you are genuine in what you're doing as opposed to doing it for a buck, I think there are enough people out there who are willing to help you. And and again, I want to bring up the example of Mike Rio, who has helped us tremendously. And there's no rhyme or reason why he should, but he, he shares that vision. You know, you share your vision with people, you let them critique it and narrow it down, see what you can get done. And the question... A related question is how do you eat an elephant? It one bite at a time. One bite at a time. Yeah. 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 It goes back to that fundamental concept, right? Yes, yes. Slow and steady progress wins the race. Yeah. And the importance being in getting to that goal and not necessarily how quickly, but how well. Yeah. Um, 
Have you ever worked in a, a toxic environment? I mean, you mentioned that it's human nature, right? Sometimes we like to blame other people. That's just one example. But have you ever worked in a, a, a toxic environment? And, and what are the, some of the things that you just refuse to put up with uh, in a work environment, whether they be physical, social, or, or psychological? I have worked in a toxic environment for brief periods. And then I walk out. <laughs> because, you know... Do you want to spend your time fixing that toxic environment? Uh, it becomes very difficult. And uh, so I won't mention names or places or locations because that will give the give it away. But, uh, sure. yeah. Protect the names uh, of the guilty. Yeah. Well, I didn't. <laughs> so what was the second part of your question, Aaron? Uh, what are some things that you're just not willing to put up with in a work environment? Dishonesty. Um, that I think makes it very difficult to work with people. There are some people I will not work with because I can't, you know, with you, it's a very easy chat. And somehow you disarm me so that I, I, I'm being very candid, much more candid than I normally am. Thank you. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, cheating, dishonesty, something, you know, we, we could have different personalities and we can argue about things. But I think as long as we both have the same objective and we are not undercutting each other and we are arguing about what's the best way, we both want to want us to get there. And it's the methodology that we are debating. You know, that that's to me that's not a toxic environment. But the moment you start undercutting one another unnecessarily, or not not even necessarily I think if I see you are doing something wrong and if we have that sort of relationship, I feel very comfortable saying, hey, Aaron, let's go get a beer. Uh, but yeah, cheating, dishonesty, um, things like that is something that I would not tolerate. Yeah, well said. I really like that you mentioned honesty. There was an audio program I listened to, I think it was maybe by Earl Nightingale, uh, lead the field. I think that's what it was. Wonderful program. I've listened to it many, many times. And in that program, he says, he was quoting someone else and he says, if honesty didn't exist, it ought to be invented as the best business tool available to us. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, we're we're getting a little, a little bit close to time, so I'll just ask a, a few more questions, and then we'll wrap it up. Yes. Um, what trends are you seeing in the engineering industry these days? Uh, you know, I don't have a good answer for that because it's a wide field, and I have been narrowly focused. I've, I've really been, the last 10 years, I've just been focused on what I've been doing to develop the biomedical engineering program. Okay, let's let's go there then. What trends are you seeing in the biomedical engineering industry? I think more and more universities are starting to hire what I call the professors of practice. They're looking for senior people who've worked in industry for several years and are willing to go back and teach and work with the students and faculty in the universities. So I, I think that's that's a very good trend. I think so too. Yeah, bring some of that practical experience into the the universities. Yeah. The other trend, which is equally important, and 
very difficult to achieve entirely is the field is indeed has always been interdisciplinary and we are seeing more and more interdisciplinary products collaborations mm. uh medical doctors are starting to talk with computer scientists for example uh things like artificial intelligence uh, is becoming a big thing again at one time it was called data mining now it's called uh, inter- artificial intelligence it's a sexier term than data mining <laughs> <laughs> I, i won't disagree with you there <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah and we when we hire we look for people with broader capabilities than just a narrow field so i want i i think people have not jumped on this quite as yet but we think of what are called the t type personalities who have both breadth and depth so if you imagine a flagpole with a broad base that gives it its stability but you're lacking depth in one area so you you have broad capabilities in a whole bunch of different areas but there's one area that you really specialize in where you have really real depth so that those sort of concepts i think are starting to come out or maybe they have been and i've just not been aware but every time i find that i say wow this makes sense that's cool this is something i've thought about as well in terms of breadth and depth more and more i'm seeing young engineers that are good not just at mechanical design or not just electrical engineering or not just uh, uh controls but they have a broader background they have some programming experience yes, yes. they have some mechanical engineering experience they have you know this and that uh they bring more value to the table than uh when i started engineering 15 20 years ago and it uh it it actually stresses me out a little bit because i'm really good when it comes to mechanical design but i'll be the first to admit that i'm not very good in other disciplines of engineering i don't know programming i don't know electrical engineering and i think to myself you know uh i've i've had my company for over 10 years now 11 12 years if the company were to blow up and i had to go out and get a job how successful would i be getting a job just as an engineer and i think uh, i i worry about that not because i think my company is going to blow up but as kind of a mental exercise uh my my engineering skill sets are somewhat limited i think i have some other skills that i've developed over the years building a business and and being an entrepreneur and those sorts of things but it, it's interesting to think about how uh, younger engineers are coming to the table with a broader skill set and uh, that's that's very cool but one of the things as an educator i think in every class i tell the students i want you to know enough about this field so that you can recognize when you need somebody else well put i don't need to know everything but that's why i think the generalist a good generalist is able to make sense of a wide variety of things and realize when hey i i really need an electrochemist here let me go find the electrochemist and that's where having um, you know a good pool of competent consultants who specialize in narrow areas yeah come in handy and so here you're able to put the team together to get that we don't have exactly to, we don't have to do everything ourselves 
Thank goodness. <laughs> yes, thank goodness. We have people on the team who can do the electrical engineering and the programming and, and all those things. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, one more question for you, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. What are one, of the, one or two of the biggest challenges that you face at work? People, dealing with people. Uh, and I think because I got the chance to start my department from scratch, I've been very careful about hiring faculty. Ah. And, you know, again, you can get an expert to come and teach one class. But as a member of the faculty, I've focused on making sure that we are a cohesive group. And I'm proud to say that I think I have a very good group of faculty in the department. We all work together. We play together. Uh, before COVID, once a semester, we meet in somebody's house and we bring our families and get to know each other and make sure that, you know, we have that honesty among us. So we disagree with things, but I think that's because I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm disagreeing with, we agree on the objective, but it's, we both want to get there. Right. But how well do we get there? You know? Yeah. Yeah. So it's working together. Just because we disagree doesn't mean we don't like each other. It's not a personal disagreement. It, it is objective. Yeah. Well, I love that you mentioned intentionally building your faculty with people that you enjoy being around, people who you trust, right? Yeah. Um, I mentioned this on, on the show before, but I think it's such a great example that I'm, I'm going to bring it up again. This company, Menlo Innovations, they, they're a software development company mm-hmm. in, uh, I can't remember where now, Wisconsin or something. But um, they, when they hire new people, the way they evaluate new candidates is they bring them in for a day and they tell the candidate, your objective today is to make your partner look good. And then they <laughs> pair that person up with another developer and let them work together. And, and at the end of the day, they evaluate did the candidate make his or her partner look good? Yeah. And I thought, what what a great way to yeah, interview yeah, someone. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've never heard of that, but that sounds great. Yeah, I love it. Well, Guna, this has been uh, marvelous. Thank you so much for your time today. How can people get a hold of you? I think email is probably the best way of reaching me. As I told you, I'm, I've got no Facebook account or Twitter account. <laughs> right. And I don't think I ever will. <laughs> Uh, and they can probably find your email address uh, at the university's website, yeah, but San Jose State. It is my first name, Guna, dot my last name, Salvadore, at sjsu dot edu. Terrific. Terrific. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Aaron. You know, this is a first-time experience for me. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And you, Good. And you do a marvelous job of keeping me relaxed. Oh, you're very kind. What a what a tremendous compliment. Thank you. All right, Guna. Well, until next time, uh, thank you for joining us on the Being an Engineer podcast. Thank you. Have a good day, Aaron, and good luck. Thank you. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please share the episode. To learn how your team can leverage our team's expertise developing turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines, and with product design, visit us at teampipeline.us. Thanks for listening.